Hi, Sherry here. Thanks for joining me again today. Jonalyn is my guest today, and she will tell you why she refers to herself as the accidental triathlete. She's a mom of five. And just a heads up for maybe a trigger warning for some people, we do talk about the fact that she is a survivor of domestic abuse. So if that might be something that causes you a trigger, I wanted to make sure that you had a heads up for that before you got any deeper into the podcast. It is a great story, but it could be a trigger for certain people. So just bear that in mind. I hope you enjoy this episode. It was a delight to talk to Jonalyn. Stories. We all have them. They're the compilation of your journey from where you started to how you ended up where you are today. Titanium Blonde is all about sharing women's stories. The good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, and everything in between all of that. I'm Sherry Eckert. This is Titanium Blonde Talks. And I'd like to know, what's your story? Just as a reminder, this is an adult podcast with adults using adult language. So you may want to listen on your headphones or maybe move to a different room because they are all just words after all. Today joining me is Jonalyn. She is someone that I met on Instagram and she is an amazing human being, mostly because she's the mother of five children, which is a feat in and of itself. She is also a triathlete. She is a survivor of domestic abuse, and she's had some serious health issues that I will invite her to share with us as well. So please welcome Jonalyn. Jonalyn, thank you so much for making the time to be with me today. Thank you so much for having me. And if you would please give us just a little bit of some fleshing out of all of that information, because yeah. there's there's a lot going on there. And there is. I'm, I'm curious to know more about it. I'm sure everybody else is. Well, I, as you said, I, I am a mom of five kids. I, uh, my biggest accomplishment right there, most proud of, of that right there. Not only because I managed to raise five kids and at one point there were four of them under the age of six. Oh uh, my God. Yeah. It got, it got pretty crazy. But um, also because they are amazing humans. Each and every one of them is doing really well. They're successful. My youngest is 13. He's busy being a 13-year-old. He's still at home. But the other four are adults, and they are living successful adult lives. So I couldn't be more proud. And uh, so I've done that with my life. And at 45, uh, I am a competitive triathlete, age grouper. So I do pretty well for for what I have accomplished in the short time I've been doing it, I started competing triathlon in 2015. And the reason that I started competing triathlon, it actually is a little bit of a longer involved story, was that in 2011, I suffered a pulmonary embolism. A lot of people will go, what does that mean? I had blood clots in my lung. It was the result of a car accident that I had been in. Mm -hmm. And as a means to recover from the embolism and the damage that it did to my lung, my son, who was then a runner at Boise State University, suggested I start running as a means to regain my lung capacity. So I started that. And uh, we can get more into that. But I, I started as a runner, but I always had those 
nagging running injuries. And during one such running injury, my son, he had then started to compete triathlon. He had gotten into the swimming and biking and because he had had some running injuries and he would invite me to swim with him or he would let me borrow his bike. And he, for Christmas that year, that was 2014, he bought me a bike. And so I felt this obligation, if you will, to, (laughs) yeah, to uh, sign up for a race. So I did, and I trained, and I competed my first triathlon in August of 2015, and I was hooked. So between August of 2015 and now, uh, I've competed several sprint distance triathlons. So those are the shorter ones, Olympic distance, which is the standard that you'll find in the Olympics. And I've also competed a half Ironman. Next year, I have a big year planned. I have a marathon on the books, two half Ironman races, and then my first full is going to be in Cozumel next November. So I'm waiting to sign up for that one. I'm really super excited. Along the way, I've really reinvented myself. It really started with 2011, that embolism experience. I kind of have evolved because initially, besides the running, I was doing yoga, as you know, and I actually got my yoga teaching certification and I have never taught a class. So that's that's, that's not unusual, though, truly, for yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. So so I got the certification, but then uh, I also was developing injuries. I had a hamstring injury that prevented me from doing a lot of the poses because it hurt. So that restricted what I was able to do. I ended up with a, a hip thing. I ended up with an elbow injury. Like I just had all these injuries that made yoga hard, but the, the triathlon stuff I could do. So I was able to keep doing that. And really it has turned into this huge passion of mine. I love it. I love the endorphins. I'm an endorphin junkie, self-admitted. I will totally probably do this sport until the day that I die. Um, it's interesting that you were you a runner like in high school or anything like that or was this sort of something later on in life that happened yeah I was not actually I really hated endurance sports when I was younger (laughs) like with a passion it just it killed me I did go out for track one year and I think I quit after the first meet it was it was that bad And as an adult, I tried several times to become a runner and it just never stuck. Like in when I was a kid growing up, I played softball and volleyball and I was on the diving team. So we swam a little bit, but not much. And I play basketball. I did tennis. Like I did all these other sports and I was always super active. I just never could get into the endurance sports. But it was really that life changing moment after my embolism when Cody was like, hey, you should try this out. I was like, all right, I'll give it a shot. I did the Couch to 5K program, which I would recommend for anybody, truly. I hated running for the first four months. I hated it. Like, I was going to say, I'm an, I'm an ex ballerina and we don't run. Although I used to run sprints when I was in, in um, junior high and into mm-hmm. high school, but I, I can't stand running. No, it was pretty miserable, actually. Uh, so I did this Couch to 5K program. When I first started the program, well, I was coming off of the lung injury. So when I first started the program, it was really hard for me to half the time even get to like the end of my street. So... My then husband, I would have him drop me off at the top of this hill that we kind of lived at the bottom at. It was about a mile and a half and uh, not very steep, but I would have him drop me off up there and I would do the program down. So I started running downhill, but the program is, if you don't know what it is, it's a program where you start off basically walking more than you're running. So you might run for 15 or 30 seconds. 
And then you'll follow that up with like a 90 second walk. And you do that until it changes where you're running more than walking and eventually just strictly running. So I did that program and I ran my first 5k and that would have been in October of 2012. And my goal for that race was to finish in under 30 minutes. And my, so when did your accident happen with the embolism? That was in November of 2011. Okay. So yeah, it took me about a year. And they told me it would take about a year for full recovery for the lung. So it took me about a year. Now, did, they, did they have you on blood thinners? Oh, I was. Yeah, yeah. I was. So after the embolism, they don't release you from the hospital with very much information. So you end up going home and you have no idea what's going on. Like, I mean, they didn't really t even tell me how serious of an injury it was. So they released me. I had my blood thinners. When I got home, I had lost so much weight. I had gone from, I was probably about 125 pounds. I'm not a big person. So I had gone from probably about 125 pounds down to, I think like 111, 110. Oh my gosh. So I was very thin. I didn't have like any fat on my body, but they take- I was going to say. They send you home and they send you with these injectables that you're supposed to do into the fat in your stomach. Yeah. Right? For the blood thinners. <laughs> oh my gosh. That was a nightmare. Oh, I had so many bruises all over my stomach. But yes, I was on the blood thinners for I think about seven months. Uh, they could never quite get my INR at the right level. So I was getting tested on the low end about once a week and on the high end like three times a week. Oh my gosh. You know, and there would be days you'd go in and they would test you and they would say, don't cut yourself today. <laughs> You'll bleed out because your blood was so thin and it, it could vary depending on what you were eating or the amount of the blood thinners that you were taking because it, it would vary depending on what your result was from the one time to the next and they would adjust it accordingly and try to get you evened out and it just never quite evened out. So seven months of going through that, it was, it was tough. Plus I was on morphine for, I don't know, six weeks to eight weeks afterwards. I was on oxygen for about three or four months. Yeah. So it, it's quite the process to, to recover from that. And like I said, they don't release you from the hospital with very much information. Actually, uh, so I had my embolism. It was November 11th of 2011. And injuries from the accident? Well, so yeah, I was in a car accident in the end of September uh, 2011. And that's a whole nother story. So I was, the end of my marriage was a disaster, an absolute disaster. And Sometimes I, they are. <laughs> well, I said the end of my marriage, it was really more of the whole thing. But um, the, the end was really bad. And I, we were separated more than we were together. I was out with some friends that night of the car accident and the designated driver obviously didn't take his duties too seriously. Oh boy. So he actually crashed into a tree. Oh Jesus. And I had been overindulging that evening and I was passed out in the back seat. And so when he crashed into the tree, I went into the center console and I broke ribs and I punctured my lung. And then of course I had your typical car accident injuries like whiplash and that sort of thing, you know, so it was a, a, a long process it, between, between when I was in the car accident and when the embolism developed, it was a six week period. So the doctors were actually kind of shocked, but I knew when it happened because I was working out, I had been cleared to work out and I had been working out with a trainer prior to the car accident. And so I started working out with him again. I worked out with him on a Monday and that was fine. And then I worked out with him on Wednesday and the last rep of the last set that I was doing on the bench, I think it was bench presses or something like that. I felt a pop in my chest mm -hmm. and between Wednesday and Friday evening, I just kind of had this continuing heaviness in my diaphragm area. Like it wasn't 
pain. Shortness of breath. Shortness of breath, but not bad, but just this mm. heaviness, like just right in the middle of my chest. It was just super heavy. So, but then by Friday, uh, my ex and I were trying, or we were separated at that point. So we were trying at that point to, to see if we could reconcile. We had gone out to dinner, we had ordered dinner, but I immediately got really sick. So I started sweating and I felt really sick and I started to have like numbness down my right arm. And I was thinking that I was having a heart attack. Right. I go out to the car and he's going to wait for the food and I'm texting him and I'm like, no, you've got to come. You've got to come because I am in so much pain. Like at that point, I had started to have a lot of trouble breathing and it hurt yep. so bad. I've had five children and I had them all, and I had them all naturally. So I know pain. Yes. <laughs> and yes. that was the worst pain that I have ever felt in my entire life. It was awful. And then not being able to breathe on top of it. It was just it probably scared the hell out of you. Oh God. It was absolutely terrifying. And then the numbness down the arm. I just thought, Oh my God. So he gets into the car and he wasn't a big fan of doctors. He says to me, I'm not taking you to the hospital. Yes, because uh, they're just going to tell you it's pain from your broken ribs and there's nothing they can do and whatever. So we go home. I take uh, some Advil, I think I took and managed to kind of fall asleep for a little bit. But then I woke up at like one or two o'clock in the morning and I was having the exact same pain. And I said, look, I don't care if all they do when I get to the hospital is give me some morphine and send me on my way, but I can't deal with this. I'm going whether I have to take an ambulance or you take me. So we did. We went to the hospital and uh, discovered that I had the embolisms. And then I was pretty much incoherent for about eight days while I was on morphine and the blood thinners, IV, you know, and in the hospital. And again, when they release you, they don't give you a whole bunch of information. So that was on November 11th that I uh, started having the pain, was hospitalized on the morning of November 12th. Well, a month later, almost to the day, my daughter who was 19, my oldest daughter who was 19 at the time had a girlfriend who had just switched birth control. And she developed blood clots in her lungs as well. And she ended up dying from it. So that was a month after I had mine. I mean, that sent me into just this massive tailspin because it was that point that I was like, oh shit, I could have died. I mean, like it really hit home the fact that I was that close to my mortality. Well, and it's, it's so interesting. I had a DVT in my left leg, my Mm -hmm. left lower leg from taking birth control pills uh, four years ago. Yeah. It's scary uh, stuff. Well, and I didn't know what it was. And I thought it was just pain because that's my leg that I always have pain in. So I was massaging it. Luckily, I was shoving it down my leg instead of up my leg. And the doctor was like, you know, it's the size of a 50 cent piece. If that thing had moved, you wouldn't have been able to dial 911. You'd have been dead. Oh, wow. I was like, holy fuck. That's (laughs) scary. And, you know, then they put me on a blood thinner that is a new, relatively new protocol that is not doesn't have anything to do with shots or checking your blood levels or anything like that so that's why the doctors like to use it but i had a horrible allergic reaction to it and it it attacked my central nervous system and i've been dealing with the fallout from that ever since and i kept telling him i was having problems and he kept me on it so like you you know when i called to tell him the first time i was having some issues and that I had found some stuff online and here was some of the side effects that I was having. And he's like, I wasn't aware that was a side effect. And I was like, would you like me to send you some links? Right. When I left was I wasn't supposed to kick with my leg. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Nothing about food, you know, because there are foods that affect your, Oh yeah. 
plotting. I mean, just uh, the whole thing was a clusterfuck. I mean, just a clusterfuck. So I can only imagine, and it was crystal clear to me the day that he told me that. I mean, I literally sat there and went, I'm looking, I'm staring down my mortality right in the face. And yeah, you know, and that changes I, things. <laughs> yes, it does. And don't you just kind of go, you know what? Life is too fucking short. I'm not wasting any more time. Oh, absolutely. And it's so not funny, but I think ironic more than anything that I will often say I am super thankful yeah. for that experience. And people will look at me like I'm crazy. But here's the thing about that is that it taught me so much. And I wasn't an unappreciative person before, but it taught me to really appreciate what I have in front of me. And actually, Sarah's death, as tragic as that was, that was was part of that experience, you know, and I, uh, I learned so much about myself, I learned so much about the people who either really did love me or the ones that I thought did, I learned, you know, just to really try to take days as they come and to appreciate them for what they are and to not sweat the small stuff, you know, as generic as that is, and just to really kind of look at the light at life through a rose colored glasses, because it is so short and it can just be gone at any moment. Well, you, know? you could step off the curb and get run over by a bus. Yeah. I mean, there, just things happen every single day. And it's like, that was sort of the thing that hit me was that, you know, at 53 years old, all of a sudden I was staring down the tunnel of my mortality going, holy shit, this right. is big. And it, it screwed with my mind for a while. And well, and it does. And then that, and that was part of my progression too, because after, after Sarah died, like I said, it kind of sent me into a tailspin and that tailspin involved an attempted suicide. Because I uh, I developed some pretty bad PTSD at that point. Like it really just knocked the wind out of my sails. And just, I mean, I didn't know whether I was coming or going. I ended up in an intensive outpatient program to kind of deal with all these emotions that I was having and not knowing to do with them and the lack of information and the lack of help and guidance. Yes. Oh my God. Well, not only that, you were dealing with the trauma of the accident in the first place still. And, and the horrible you know, ending of my marriage. Like I had so much shit going on in my life. It was like this perfect storm. Yeah. The shit storm. Yeah. You know, exactly. I'm still uh, occasionally a shit Creek survivor, you know, I'm paddling, but, and, <laughs> but no, I just, it, so I, I did that, but I went through this intensive outpatient program and they had me on so many drugs and, oh, and I've shared this on, on social media before, and I kind of get some backlash about some of the stuff that I share because some people feel that I'm a little bit too open. But you know what? There's somebody out there that can listen to it and who who needs that information, who realizes, okay, I'm not alone. Like I think people look at me sometimes and they're like, she's got her shit together. And that's why I try to be, be as real as I can be through my social media. Like not just share, oh, I'm doing this with my training or these are my successes, but I'm also sharing that like shitty information that people don't necessarily want to share, but that other people need to hear. There's somebody out there that's like, oh fuck, I really needed that. Thank you so much for being a real person as opposed to that highlight reel that we get used to seeing on social media. It's interesting that you mentioned that because that is the part of sort of the the thing that spurred me on to create my group my focus group do the stuff i do on my blog posts as well as doing this podcast is when people have said to me 
well, I don't really think it's that I don't really have anything that that's important. My story, you know, I, nothing I really have to say is not mind blowing or blah, 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 blah. And it's like, you never know what little tiny kernel of a story actually finds someone on the other end and that changes their life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It doesn't have to be major. It doesn't have to be mind blowing. But exactly what you just said is that those are the things that people need to hear to one, realize they're not alone. Two, that the honesty, you and I are a lot alike in that. It's like, I let it all hang out on social media. And I take the, you know, I take yoga pictures and, and make sure that they're beautiful and blah, blah, blah. But that's a snapshot in time. The rest of it is, you know what, this is me, baby, hanging it all out there. And you can either get on the Sherry train or don't let the door hit in the ass on the way out. It's fine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I so appreciate your honesty and sharing about that because someone else is going to need to hear that. And I think that as women, especially, we deal with so much trauma, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, all of that. And in a society that doesn't value women's emotions, Mm. allow us to be angry or sad or mad, because when we do that, we don't look pretty. We don't, we scare people with the ferocity of who we are. All of those things that we've been stuffing all that stuff down for so many years. And I think that's why there's so many women out there that are sick. Oh, yeah they they haven't been able to release that so it it's just interesting to me that when we get together when there's a space a platform an environment an invitation for women to share that it's a game changer and oh, for sure i try to do the things that I couldn't find for me that I needed, right? So building connection, building community, reaching out, sharing what's going on, because those are the things I wish someone would have said to me. And then if you look at the power dynamics in medicine, so you're dealing with someone who's gone to school and they they think they know it all. I, I'm not a huge fan of, of conventional medicine at all because it's almost killed me twice. But it's the thing of a lot of times when you deal with a then you add a male doctor and a female patient, that power dynamic gets ratcheted up even higher and they don't want to hear you. They don't think that you know your own body. They want to brush you off, want to Mm -hmm. brush your concerns off. It's so incredibly frustrating. And I'm sure that as athletic as you've been your entire life and as much in touch with your body as you are, you know things that you can tell someone that if they're paying attention and listening to you, that can actually make your care better, but they either discount it or don't want to hear what you have to say. Oh, absolutely. I think there's a lot of that for sure. And I'm dealing with a lung issue actually right now uh, that I can't seem to solve. I went and they, the x-ray said, well, I had a, a nagging cough for, oh gosh, I don't know, four or five months before I ever got this x-ray done. And the x-ray said that it was possible COPD. But then I went to the pulmonologist and who was like, there's nothing wrong with you. And he's like, take this inhaler, come back in six weeks. We'll do a pulmonary function test. We'll see what's going on. Well, the entire time that I was sitting there in the office with him, I just felt like he was looking at me like I was stupid, didn't know what I was talking about. And that couldn't possibly be what I was feeling or experience. Like he just looked at me like I didn't know my body well enough. And I'm like, you don't seem to understand. Like, 
I know my body as much as I work out and the things that I have to pay attention to and, and feel my training, you know, I, I have to pay attention to those things. I have to be in tune with that. I am totally in tune with my body and what's going on. And you're sitting there looking at me like I'm insane. Like, I don't know what I'm talking about. I was so frustrated when I walked out of that office, but you're right. It happens yeah. all the time. Yeah. And you know, I, I mean, through all of this, I've been through two different, you know, major medical things and dealing with mostly male doctors and, after coming off the last two years of having to deal with chronic hives as a severe allergic reaction to the blood thinner that I was on. And I finally found a functional medical specialist who's also certified in Ayurvedic medicine. And it's all about going to root cause and not just trying to cover it up. Before I found her, they had me on immunosuppressors that they give to people who have had organ transplants so they don't reject their organs. And I was having horrible horrible reactions. And it started to affect my blood pressure, my kidney and liver function. I mean, they were killing me to try and stop the hives. They were killing, you know, breaking five other things to try and fix one. And I found this woman and she is incredible. And all of a sudden I just went, I'm no longer ever going to deal with a male doctor. (laughs) I don't want, I don't want a male doctor ever again. I, I want to deal with a woman because they listen to you. They pay attention to what you have to say. Definitely. I agree. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure they think they're incredibly smart, but they call it practicing medicine for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, kills me. You have five children. I do. You've launched, you've launched four of them. I have. So you mentioned that you were a survivor of domestic abuse. I am. I um, My ex-husband and I... It was mainly mentally and emotionally abusive relationship. But there were a couple of occasions where he did end up getting arrested for domestic violence. And of course, I'm at a point now because we've been divorced. We, We separated in 2013 and we were divorced in 2014. So we've been apart for a while now. And I've actually gotten to a really good point in my life where I, I've forgiven him. We're actually, I would even call us on the friend level. Like I would say that, okay, I, I trust him enough at this point that I can deal with him in a friend manner. Not like where I'd be like, hey, come over, we're having drinks. Let's let's buddy up and, and be great friends. But like there are things that I could talk to him about now that I'm totally comfortable with. And, and, and that is definitely... Definitely a, a part of our past. And he's the father of your kids? He is. Not my oldest daughter. My oldest daughter has a different biological dad, but the next four are, are with him and I. And uh, he did adopt my oldest daughter when she was three, I think. It was a pretty difficult relationship. We were married for 19 years. And at this point, I have really, I've really let all of that go. And then, of course, I had a, a more recent, I guess, even though you think you learn from your past, sometimes you need to relive it until you do really learn from it. I was in a relationship recently with someone who I really did feel like he was a very good person. There was a lot about him that I could see. There was potential. There were definitely good qualities about him, but he had his own life of difficulties between uh, physical abuse and sexual abuse. And then having been in the military for 20 years and been deployed for a lot of that and seen a lot of combat, so a lot of death. And then post-military, he was in the sheriff's department and he was on the SWAT team. So again, a lot of death there. He just wasn't entirely mentally stable, I discovered. And this was uh, earlier this year. We kind of had that on-again, off-again relationship. And in August, 
he was here at my house getting stuff and because he was he was moving out we had an argument about I think it was about his ex-wife or something because she for whatever reason wanted him back after a year and a half and (laughs) so we were having an argument about that and I just I needed to get ready for work I was done with the discussion and I went to get in the shower and well long story short he came over we had a little bit of an altercation he ended up grabbing me by my throat and strangling me oh Jesus so that was uh in August he was arrested for that and he he was in jail for a while. I actually did get an opportunity to go to his court date. He had some other pending litigation against him, a couple other felonies actually. Uh, but I was able to read my my victim's statement, which was so empowering. I accepted a plea deal for him for my charge because I knew that even though he wasn't going to get the felony charge for the strangulation, on my case, I knew that he was going to be convicted of a felony for his other stuff that he had going on. And the DA's office, after discussing it with me, said that they felt like they didn't necessarily have the, the proof that they needed in order to be able to really fully prosecute my case. But I got to go to court and to read my victim statement. The first thing really that really struck me was that I walked in, sat down, you know, then of course they bring him in and he's sitting at the table. Well, he was in his jail uniform. He was shackled. You know, so there was no power at all for him. So I right. felt I'm like, okay, this is this is already good for me. Like I'm already feeling more powerful. I'm already like it was scary, but I'm I'm starting to get my strength back already. Like I'm already feeling more powerful in this situation. And he had lost a lot of weight. And you know, we go through the, the court proceedings. The judge gives him the opportunity to turn around or to to say what he wants to say. And he says that he wants his only thing that he really wants to say is that he would like to apologize to me and my family. And the judge was like, well she's right there. So he <laughs> And he turns around and he, with fake tears in his eyes, is apologetic. And I'm just Mm. staring. Like, I have ice in my veins at this point because I don't believe it, for starters. And then, you know, they go through the rest of their legal babble. And his attorney's comment was, because he had been in jail for 37 days at that point, his attorney's comment was, well, not only has he served 37 days, but it's been a hard 37 days because of his previous law because of his previous law enforcement service he basically had to be in solitary so it was a hard 37 days well in my head I'm like that's fine you can say that if you want to because I've already addressed that in my victim statement so I get up there and I start explaining what happened that day and basically I said you know while you might have been sitting in a jail cell for a short period of time You shackled me with something that I didn't deserve. You shackled me with fear. You shackled me with pain. I mean, I had trouble swallowing for probably nearly three weeks. Yeah. Taking the emotional trauma. Oh, my. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was looking over my shoulder everywhere I went. Yeah. During this entire time where he's incarcerated, I also started finding out about all of his infidelity. So he was with at least five other women. And I mean, it just... It was like a nightmare situation. And then you just, but then you sit there and you get hard on yourself, right? How could I have done this? How could I have not have seen the signs? How did it happen? Exactly. Like it's all you. Yeah. 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 You know, but, but being able to, to see him in court and to read my statement and to take back my power that day, even though I thought I had taken back my power going through my divorce and having to deal with my ex-husband and stuff, I never fully had until that day. For some, there was like some 
tipping point, turning point, something that is all fit together that just went click. Exactly. I was like, this will never happen again. You know, and I have always felt like I was a pretty confident person, but like, it was just like a new level of self-confidence and self-love and like, okay, I was alone. I was not in a relationship, but that was totally okay. You know, that was like, no big deal. I have a bed to myself. I get to spend my money on myself. I get to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Like I'm right. Failing to see the downside here. It's so hard with the mental and emotional sabotage that happens in a relationship like that, because it doesn't leave any scars and nobody else sees it and you internalize it all. And then it starts to become the story that you tell yourself that there must be something wrong with you. Well, and, and that's just it because again, like you're saying, there's not like this physical stuff. I had some bruising on me and stuff. I didn't have any bruising on my neck, which was why the DA said they didn't think they would be able to, get the the strangulation charge on him. So, so no, I didn't have like all these super physical signs and you love that person. Right. So that's, you know, that makes it even harder because you're like thinking in your head, I can still save him. I mean, it's the most bizarre victim mentality and you can see it in other people and all day long, you can say to somebody else, I can see what you're doing. You shouldn't do this. You should do that. Like it's easy to look at somebody else's life and do that. But when it becomes your life, you're you're blinded by it all. So it starts so subtly. You know, for me, I was in two different relationships where it was all emotional and verbal. And the first one, I was very young, only in my, my younger 20s. And, and it was like, I didn't even realize what had happened until I was out of the situation. And the second one, I was older, but it's so sneaky and it starts so small And you, like you said, you love that person and you want to think the best of them. And you also think that if I just love them enough, that everything will be okay. Right. Exactly. Tell yourself, right. If I just love enough, it'll be okay. Exactly. And what I finally discovered was that it didn't matter how much I loved him. You never love someone enough for them to be fixed. When they are that much of a bottomless pit, when they are that empty on their own, when they can't fill themselves up, there is nothing that you can do Mm-mm. that will fill them and up. There's just not. All they're going to do is just take you down with them. That, exactly. That's how it happens. And we had actually gone to a therapy session or two with my therapist. And when I went in, oh, I love my therapist so much. He's amazing. He went into an emergency session with me on Labor Day because it had happened that Friday previous. And um, he met me at his office on that Monday. And even he was like, yeah, I didn't see this coming. Cause I felt like everybody else does. Oh my gosh, how could I not have seen this coming? Yeah. And my therapist was like, you're not the only one. I mean, I met with you guys together. I wouldn't have never seen that either. So, you know, that's a little bit reassuring because you do start to wonder where, where's your perception? What are you really that in touch with me? Yeah. Are you in touch with what's going on around you and who the people are that you're in your lives with? And you think that you know somebody. And I felt like I was living this drama, this like drama movie, but it was my life. Yeah. And again, it's one of those things that I'm I'm thankful for, oddly, 
Yes. Not anything that I would want to relive or that I would wish on anybody else, but you learn a lot. You learn a lot about yourself as a person and about the people around you. It's so interesting to me to look at things like that and to think about the fact that, you know, and I wallowed for a while, but I'll never forget. I had a therapist many years ago in a different relationship. And she said, Sherry, she said, you're dealing with a highly intelligent person who is an adult on the one hand and a seven-year-old little boy that never got enough love and attention. And because he is highly intelligent, it makes it very easy for him to cover up. It makes him very easy for him to hide. Right. And she said, there will be things that will come out. And she said, if you choose to stay with him, you can tell him, I'll be your lover, I'll be your friend, but I can't be your mother and I can't solve your problem for you. It's so interesting because I think as women, you know, we're the nurturers. We want to be the fixers. We want to take care of the things and put the band-aids on the boo-boos and, and do all of that. And sometimes it's to our own detriment. And I think you're right. I think that though it was shitty to have to go through all of that, that you learn so much about yourself. Let me ask you this. Did you find that for a while you were like, I can't trust myself to make a good decision because. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. I feel like that's really an understatement. Actually, actually afterwards I said, I'm no longer allowed to pick my own significant other. Like I was going to put that in in somebody else's hands because I said, I've done such a crappy job at it up to this point. Obviously my picker is broken and I either need to be single or I need to have somebody else figure that out for me. Because I just, I don't know if I gravitate towards people who need me that way. It's like the whole um, narcissist empath relationship, right? Yeah. You know, and he and he was that. You're talking about like a seven-year-old boy who just, it's like they get emotionally stunted and they, and they can't get past yep. it. Whatever yep. very tragic thing happened to them at whatever age it was, and typically in youth, it's like they, they just never emotionally grow past that. And he did, he needed somebody to constantly give him just adoration and tell him how great he was. And there was not enough that I could say or do to prove to him that, you know, I thought he was a good guy or thank you so much for what you did or or whatever it was. Like he would text me throughout the day and say, even though I had already said thank you for something, he would go, oh, did you like that? Yeah, I, you know, I already told you that. And Was he a scorekeeper? My oh, last yeah. The scorekeeper, if, you know, he bought things for me or did things for me or whatever it was. And whenever he'd get angry or pissed off at me, he'd throw it up. Well, I did, you know, blah, blah, blah for you. So can't you just do, you know, so and and it's just like, God damn it. I didn't ask for that. I didn't tell you you had to do it. So don't fucking keep score and throw that up when you, you know, you're not getting what you need or what you want or whatever the hell it is. And it's just like, you know, I came out of that whole thing and it was so hard because the last one was 13 years. So like you with your first exit, you know, that's a long time to be with someone. Oh, it is. And And they really mold you. I mean, you kind of become this unit, which is how that's supposed to be. But even, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's a good thing, a bad thing, indifferent. You become kind of this unit. And typically that... Even though you're up here, like you might be on this higher level or, or whatever as far as being an emotionally stable person, that lower person always seems to bring you closer down to oh, them than yes. you would ever bring them up. Yeah. You know, so it's uh, definitely in your best interest to get 
involved with people in your life who are emotionally healthy and that are not going to be those energy drains and bring you well, down. And and my thing too is that I'm not looking for perfect because I know I'm not fucking perfect. Oh, God, everybody's no. you know we're all going to keep making mistakes, but I've done some work and I'd really like to meet someone that's done some work and I haven't met anyone yet that can keep up with me. So. <laughs> You know, I'm I'm at this point in time where it's like, I don't really relish the idea of being alone for the rest of my life, but I have my granddaughter, I have my daughter, I have a job I like, I my teaching yoga with students that I love, I'm doing this podcast, and, and I have a lot of things in my life that bring me a lot of joy and a lot of happiness. And so though I would really love to have someone come into my life, it's like, I'm not I, I'm not desperately seeking that and it has to be the right person that's going to show up. And what I'm working on right now is just to keep an open heart so right. that I can pay attention to something that might show up. But it's just like, you know, I, I spent all of those years in relationships and this, I, I've been, on, I've been alone for the most of the last of nine years. I mean, I've dated and had some relationships, but nothing long-term. And it's just like, I am not, especially after the last four years, I am not willing to give away my happiness. I'm not willing to give away the things that matter to me. I'm not willing to let someone bring me down in order to make them feel better because life's too short. I'll either go through doing what I need to do and, and find my own happiness and do my own thing, or somebody will show up and meet me on the path and, and we can go together. But I Amen. just, and, and this whole thing with online dating, oh man. Oh my God. <laughs> Fuck. Are it's we going just, there? <laughs> you know, it, it's so freaking exhausting. It's mm. exhausting. I find it incredibly exhausting. Oh, and I, I just, I find that so many guys are out there and they're just looking for the bigger, better deal. Oh, and I actually wrote, <clears throat> pardon me, a post on that not too long ago. It's, uh, it's this, you know, we, we live where we have immediate access and immediate yes. gratification to pretty much anything that we want or need, right? <laughs> so you have this, you have this buffet in front of you of an endless amount of people and choices. And especially you go into online dating websites or even on social media sites where people might hit you up, you know, through a direct message or whatever. And then <laughs> you have this endless buffet, right, to choose from. So if you go on a date with somebody and it's not working out for you, or if something isn't perfect right away, well, then it's really easy to move on to the, the next thing because there are so many options out there instead of figuring out, well, hey, okay, maybe it was a little quirky at first, or maybe they were nervous on the first date or, or whatever it was, instead of like really getting to know the person that you chose to go out on the date with to begin with, or engage in conversation or whatever it is, you, you never get to that deeper level of knowing somebody because of all of these other choices. So instead yeah. of figuring out if what you have in front of you is the first best thing, people are always looking for the next best thing. Yeah, the bigger, because better deal. I mean, it's, it's just like, well, you know, if you're not gonna agree to have sex with me tonight, I'll just go find someone who will. And it's like, exactly. Yeah, I don't, yeah. And don't get me wrong, I love good sex. Well, but who doesn't? <laughs> I, well, I think some of these people out there need to have a good mind-blowing sex session, and maybe they'd be a whole lot less concerned with what other people are doing in their lives. But right. 
it's the thing of, it's like at this point in time in my life, I'm old enough to know that while sex is great in that, that attraction is fantastic. We both know that that doesn't last forever. So there's got to be something else on a deeper level to be able to sustain you through that space. And, well, exactly. You well, know, I just. <laughs> and and so, so the, the guy that I'm, I'm seeing now, we met at work. So we've known each other for a while. I went into my therapist and, and again, I absolutely adore my therapist. So I went into him after we started seeing each other and I said, well, he's not the typical guy that I would date. So my therapist was asking me what that meant. And first of all, he's a little bit older than I am, not a lot, but he's a little bit older than I am. He's not like super athletic or anything. And which is hard for me because I'm so active and I train so much. And, but my therapist was really trying to get to the bottom of that. He's like, what does that mean? I want to really find out what that means. So I really had to think about it and I had to dig deep. So what that meant was what I discovered was that typically the person that I would pick was the one that I was immediately like physically attracted to. Right. But then you get past that physical attraction and you get past the sex, which, okay, yeah, that's great. But you get past that and there's not this emotional depth. No. It's emotionally lacking. There's right? no there there. Exactly. There's no there there. So <laughs> with with this guy, um, I've always thought that he was handsome, but he's not the guy that I would have just swooned over on the street, right? So he's not the, the guy that I would have been like, as a physical specimen, you're the one that I'm totally into. But he's an amazing man and we have a really great emotional connection and he's safe. You know what I mean? He's a safe space for me. Like I don't have to worry about if I'm having a super emotional freak out kind of day because I know that he will give me my space if that's what I need and he will be there at the end of that space and he will be willing to talk to me about whatever it is he's completely open to communication he's so emotionally healthy and that's what was different that's yeah. what's been missing yeah maybe i need to when i ever meet someone i'm going to run them through you first they have to do it <laughs> oh no i'm the picker <laughs> well you know i i believe that sometimes it's like I can give great advice. I can look at someone's situation. I can listen to their story and what they have to say and give them advice. And most of it comes from hard lessons learned on my own. And some days I scratch my head and go, how can I give that great advice to somebody else? And I fucked that up so bad on my own. <laughs> oh, I fuck up everything. <laughs> and then I have a laugh over it and I learned my lesson and then I move on. <sighs> It's interesting because there's a lot of times I feel like in my family, I am the black sheep. I'm the one that's not still married. I'm the one that, you know, lives in an apartment. I'm the one, all of these things. And sometimes there are comments that are made and it makes it a little difficult for me sometimes to have to move in that situation and, and live with that and not beat myself up over my past choices. Um, oh my goodness. Well, <clears throat> so the, the funny thing there for me was I was an awful teenager. Like I was just a nightmare child and I apologize to my parents all the time for it now, but I'm pretty sure that they didn't really expect me to maybe live past my teenagers or maybe my early twenties. <laughs> like I was, 
I mean, growing up, I was into drinking and drugs and I would stay out and they couldn't do anything about it. Like I was a really bad teenager. So when I grew into a pretty decent adult, I think they were a little bit surprised by it. And even to this day, I can kind of hear this like almost tone of respect with, you know, and again, you can't really say that the teenagers <clears throat> can't be excused, but I, it, I think that people are still amazed by what I became as to what they knew me as when I was a kid, because I moved away from my hometown when I was 20. So those people only knew me as this rebellious terror. I mean, my parents have seen me and my, my family has seen me develop in, into a different adult with my passions and the things that I love and, you know, have a, a stable marriage or our long-term marriage for, you know, 19 years. It was, I can't, you can't really call that like a, a total failure. And, but I don't think that anybody ever expected me to be the person I am today, especially not with like doing the triathlons and stuff. My, my ex-husband is the biggest, he was the biggest naysayer. So when we got separated and divorced and I started running, uh, I was training for my first half marathon. I remember there was a day that he came over to pick up our youngest for a visit. And my oldest son had answered the door and he made a comment or asked a question saying something like asking or asked how my training was going. That's what it was. And my son said, you know, it's not going great right now. She has a stress fracture, but you know, she'll get past that and she'll, she'll be fine. He looked at him and he goes, you really think that she's going to run that? She's going to be able to run a half marathon. And my son looked at him and goes, my mom can do anything. So when it was very cool. So when I crossed the finish line of that first half marathon, I was in tears. Oh my gosh. I just remember covering my face and just bawling because it was like, fuck you. Fuck (laughs) you. I did this in spite of you. You know what I mean? It was just like, oh, it was such a feeling. And then when I, you know, completed my first half Ironman. It was a very similar feeling. It was like, I'm conquering all these goals and you never thought I could. You always said, you know, I will never amount to anything. Nobody will ever want me. Uh, You'll never be able to do whatever it was, you know, run a marathon or, or whatever it was. And I'm doing all of these things. And now, as I was saying, we have a, a pretty good relationship at this point. Now he looks at me with like this respect. Like, I know at this point that you can do anything. Yeah. You know, so it's a complete 180. Yeah. What does balance look like in your life these days? Oh, sakes. That's a great question. That's an absolutely great question. It's really hard to achieve. I don't... I don't have a lot of time. I mean, between being a mom with my 13 year old still at home and still having very close relationships with my adult children and and my training and and work, it's hard to find a really good balance. I, I mean, I don't know that I have it right now. It's just most of the time. So this today, for instance, today is actually kind of a chill day for me, but I got up at 345 this morning to go to the pool and I swam 3,100 yards. And then I got ready for work, went to work, had an appointment after work, came home. I I bought my kid fast food on the way home (laughs) because I'm like, I don't think I'm going to have time to do dinner tonight. I'm in the middle of a move. So I'm trying to pack and stuff. 
it's really hard to find balance when you are trying to fit in so much. And I can kind of see the next year of my life being a little bit hectic with my training. I'm I was going to say, you've got some pretty big goals for what you want to achieve. I do. I, uh, well, especially the biggest of those being my anticipated full Ironman next November in Cozumel. Uh, So the training for that will get very intense. So while I feel like I don't have a ton of time right now, and I'm probably training on average between 10 to 12, 13 hours a week, by the time that I am getting ready to compete at Ironman, my my training will probably be like a part-time job. You know, I'll probably be hitting the 20 hour mark easily, you know, and one of those days will be six hours on a bike. So, so it's, it's not easy. I mean, I don't feel like I'm completely unbalanced. I I certainly pick and choose my battles about things that are important to me. And fortunately, I have a really great support system around me of people who understand what my goals are and things that are important to me and, and things that I want to be able to achieve. So I have people that are there to kind of pick up the slack where I'm not able to. So if I can't get home to do the dishes or to cook dinner or or whatever it is, I have people that can pick up those pieces for me so that I can, you know, try to try to meet these goals to to do this training that I want to do and to be successful in that. I mean, will the Ironman be a one and done? It could possibly be because (laughs) people look at me like I'm crazy and it might just be a crazy thing. And that's kind of why I picked Cozumel because I figured if I was going to suffer, I was going to suffer in paradise. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's funny. I used to um, play softball and I played with a group of cops and firefighters. And one of the firefighters that I played with was an EMT and he would go to Hawaii every year to do the Ironman in Hawaii as mm. an EMT. Mm. And he's like, Sherry, he's like, these people, he says, they go through this thing and they do this. And he said, and they get hurt or they get sick or they're, you know, he says, it's crazy. He says, I look at this stuff and he goes, and it's crazy to me. He says, absolutely crazy. Right. But he said, you know, for some of them, it's, this is just, this is like the pinnacle doing that Iron Man in Hawaii is like the pinnacle. And he said, so I understand that. And he goes, you know, I've also worked on movie sets. He said, I worked on The Postman with uh, Kevin Costner. And he said, he said, you know, <laughs> who was the most interesting person I met on the set? And I said, uh, no. And he said, Tom Petty. And I was like, I love Tom Petty. And he's like, Tom Petty came to me every day asking for me for meds, for drugs. Oh, wow. <laughs> so he's that. He said, he said, it's just, it's so interesting to watch these people. And he said, some of them are successful and others of them not. Some of them don't even, you know, complete the whole race. But he said they, they accomplished what their goal was, was to qualify and get there and, you know, do all of that. And he said, but he goes, he says, I just, he says, sometimes I look at them and I shake my head and I wonder (laughs) what they were thinking. Oh, it's it's an undertaking for sure. And it's interesting, though, you, you mentioned successful. So what is the measure of that? Right. So um, is it just making it to Tacona, for instance, for, for that athlete? Is it getting to the, the start line? Is it making it through the swim? Is it, I mean, what right. is the measure of success? Because you look at these pro athletes who are, who are doing these races in eight hours. Right. You know? I mean, it's right. it's absolutely crazy and then for me I, I was talking to my son who is my coach I asked him I said how long do you think it will take me 
to to finish uh, Iron Man because I was watching Iron Man Arizona uh, live that day and he was kind of figuring it out in his head. He goes, I think you could probably do it in about 13 and a half hours. And I said, I said, well, between now and then, because again, it's not until November. I said, I'm going to take off at least 30 minutes. I said, my goal is to finish in under 13. So we'll see. I mean, and he had it all plotted out. I think it'll take you this long to finish the swim and it'll take you this long to do the bike. And of course you can't really account for things like weather or how you're feeling that day or waves, you know, in the open water swims or whatever it is. You got to have different plans for what success looks like to you in those situations. Because if I get to Cozumel and let's say I end up with a DNF, do not finish. If I end up with the DNF was, you know, just getting there, was that part of my success or is my success only based on unfinished uh, right yeah exactly so you know that can look different for everybody and I mean being who I am I think it will be hard for me to go there and not finish if that were to happen so for for me in my head right now my measure of success obviously is going and finishing because I'm a pretty competitive person but you know but that look I think that looks different for everybody. I have a a friend that I know through social media who has started way more races than she has ever finished. And she has some health problems and she's a cancer survivor and, and she's got some other health stuff going on, but she never gives up and her spirit is absolutely indomitable. It just, it's so amazing to watch her and to see her posts and, and to listen to her story and, and to watch her get, to a starting line of whatever race it is in. And, you know, she might come out of the swim and, you know, have some of her health issues and not be able to continue on the bike, or she might get, you know, 10 miles into the bike and then something happens. Like, but right. she never gives up. She keeps going to those starting lines. Like, well, and when you, when you're dealing with the human body in a physical pursuit, there's never anything that is a slam dunk. You know, it's every day. It's something different. Your body has something else going on for whatever day. And you got to, like you said, you've got to have sort of a plan for any eventuality that might show up. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And like I said, that's why you have different goals. You know, you have your A goal, your B goal, your C goal. Like I, I, you know, you got to give yourself different things to, to make it a successful day for yourself. I think no matter what you're doing. Oh, absolutely. If you could have a billboard with any phrase on it, what would it be and why? Oh, um, that's a great question. Probably, I think the quote that I really love is that um, storms make trees take deeper roots. Ah, okay. I, I absolutely love that. Um, because I think it's those really difficult times in your life that shape you that really develop your foundation, make you dig in. It it tests us, um, question your beliefs and, you know, even rewrite your story. Yeah. You know, well, that's the thing is, is that, you know, it's, everyone's life is a compilation of all of the stories and sharing your story is, is sometimes helpful for not only for yourself, but for other people. But the one thing that, I am always cautious about is making sure that your story doesn't 
or your stories don't define you, that they can be that compilation of stories and you can always start a new book. You can always do a different chapter. You can take a different turn in the road. You can make a different choice, a different decision. You are never, and I had to learn this the hard way, you're never truly trapped. It's it's all, you have to remind yourself that you have options. You have the choice. You can make a change. You can do something different. And, oh, right. And isn't that the fucking cool part? Yep. You know yep. what I mean? I, I think that totally separates the sayers from the doers. Like, yep. you know what I mean? Yep. And, like, I, so going back to the pulmonary embolism, you know, people always question me when I say that I'm oddly grateful for it, but it really changed my perspective on so much. And I feel like you can, when something life altering like that happens to you, I think you can really go one of two ways, right? Like you can totally let it affect you and destroy you, um, or you can come back stronger. I mean, you can build from that. You can use that as some positive platform, positive springboard to, to turn it into something good and instead of just being the person who sits there and talks about it, then you're the doer. You're the one that's changing things and, and making an impact, not even only on your own life, hopefully, you know, but maybe on make that ripple effect and, and affect those people around you. After I had my embolism and started kind of putting myself out there more on social media and talking about my story and things that went on, you know, I'd have people reach out. I'd have people message me and say, well, you're so inspirational. And I, I am so thankful that people think that about me, but I'm, I don't think that about myself necessarily. I just am who I am. I don't really have very many options to be somebody else. Right. So <laughs> it's, it's, I, I laugh because I understand that completely. And sometimes when people say that to me, Oh, you're so inspiring. It's like, and, and I had trouble just figuring out what clothes to wear this morning. But thank you. <laughs> <laughs> right. <clears throat> Yeah, I had trouble just getting out of bed this morning, but thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> but it, so that goes back to the people that see our highlight reels. And yes. Well, I want to ask you one more question. Okay. Where do you feel most present? Um, that's a great question as well. Most present. I probably feel most present at water or on water. So be, be that at Lake Tahoe or the ocean. I really love and connect with water. So, you know, any, any place near that, I mean, I love swimming and I love paddleboarding and I love laying on a beach and I love, you know, just anything to do with it. It just really calms me. I'm able to definitely live more in the moment and the waters or the colors of water, sorry, the colors of water is just something that is visually super pleasing to me. And I don't know, just the sound. Don't you find the oh, sound? Well, actually, yeah. So I, on my Alexa every night, I have her play beach waves. <laughs> <laughs> so that's yeah. what I listen to as I sleep. You know, I live on an Island surrounded by the Puget sound. So I walk and the beach is an eight minute walk from my doorstep. And so I spend a lot of time there, but it, the Puget sound does not have the crashing waves. And I took my granddaughter to Seaside in October and it had been a while since it'd been a couple of years since I'd been to the Oregon coast. I grew up down there and, and love the beach on the Oregon coast so much. It's incredible. 
and just to spend some time there. And that kid loves the beach as much as I do. And the first morning that we woke up in the hotel, she woke me up at six o'clock in the morning, reached over with her little finger and poked me and said, and came up with her face in my face and said, <laughs> beach. Oh, I love it. You know, and I think that's probably also part of the reason that I picked Cozumel. It's like, if I'm, like I said, I mean, if I'm going to suffer, I'm going to suffer in paradise. And then I'm going to take a vacation afterwards. There and you go. where do I want to be? I want to be on a beach. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today and being so willing and open to share all of the things that you shared today, because I truly believe in the ripple effect. I truly believe in sharing and that that can reach people on a level that sometimes we really don't truly have a deep enough understanding about how impactful that can be. And especially in this time where we have, like you said, so much in social media is the highlight reel. It's the the one photo out of 80 that someone took and then they edited, you know, the life out of that it shows up and everyone's like ooing and aahing and then mm -hmm. the story all of these people that are traveling the world and doing all of this. And I believe that leads to a lot of jealousy and a lot of people feeling a lack that they are, you know, that they're not living a, a full and good life. And I just. Comparison is the thief of joy. Yes, it is. And mm -hmm. I just, it's so important for people to hear the low down dirty truth about not just the good stuff, but the other shit that rolls into your life. And oh yeah. I mean, and again, that's why I said I've, I've shared my story just because I don't want to be that highlight reel. I would love to be relatable to people. So if they are struggling with something that I share that they feel like they could reach out to me and I've had that happen, which is awesome. It is awesome. And I know that I have affected some people's lives because I've had conversations and and actually develop friendships through those things. And I think that's really important. It's part of giving back. Well, I just think it's a part of living a wholehearted life is that you admit that there's there's hard stuff, there's the easy stuff, and there's everything in between. And to be able to to share that is so much a part of being able to live a wholehearted life. It's, you, you don't get to have one without the other. There's, it's, it's just like the masculine and the feminine. It's all a part of the whole. So oh, absolutely. I so appreciate you doing this. I, I'm just really, really thankful that you could be here today and share with me and share with everybody else. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm going to put together some more of those round tables. So I'm going to tap you to uh, come back and join me again in a round table with uh, some other people and we'll get into some other topics. And uh, I would love that. All right. Okay. Well, thank you again. And if people would like to find you on social media, where should we direct them to? On Instagram, I am at accidental.triathlete. Um, and friend request me on Facebook, Jonalyn Foreman. Okay, great. Thank you again. Thank you.